And thank you, John Dester, for being here. Yeah, this is a really special treat. Our first uh, Zoom podcast. That's right. So with our very, are we recording? Are we on? Yeah. All right, great. Right. With our very special guest, John David Desser from Loudoun County, Leesburg, Virginia. John is a um, old friend of, of mine going back some 35 years, 40 years. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. You guys in grade school together? <laughs> no, we weren't in grade school together. We went to, uh, we met uh, as I entered my freshman year into a school in Tucson, Arizona called St. Gregory High School, which has been renamed the Gregory School. Oh, really? Yeah. They spent $200,000 to rename to take, St. Gregory High School the Gregory School. They took Be the saint out of it? They took the saint out of it because it had become more secular anyway. Oh, okay. And originally it was founded by uh, members of the Episcopal Church, and they had moved away from that. So there's some th there's some understanding with that, but I don't know. So John and I went to high school together, and we began our friendship then. And... Uh, Gosh, you want to you want to tell some of the stories, John? Well, I, I believe I still have the singular distinction of being the only person to ever been kicked out of that school not once but twice. That's that's correct. <laughs> that's correct. And uh, and, and uh, one pastor told me that I was the focus of evil at that school. The focus of evil. Wow, that's that's pretty hardcore. That's, hard. that's a nice beginning. <laughs> conversation but um no we did meet at saint gregory and um we ran in the same group of friends in high school and then in the summers chris went to usc and i went to northern arizona in the summers we'd reconnect in tucson spend time together over the summers and i i'd say we became closer friends during those summers than maybe we even were in high school we we had a very close new close-knit group of friends it was about five or six of us that all ran together but there were a couple summers where Chris and I spent especially more time together. And then, of course, there was the um, ski trip that we took to the White Mountains. What year was that? I was in college. I know that. I think that was 91. That might have been the winter of 91. But, but our, our, our relationship really grew with the summer we spent in Washington, D.C., where you, were, you had your first foray into pop you know, into public politics with John McCain. Okay, but what I was doing my internship uh, with. What came first, the ski trip or D.C.? D.C. It was D.C., then the ski trip. Okay, all right, fair enough. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> so, well. We spent uh, so long ago, it's easy to forget. Right? Okay, so, so, in the, so, in the, so in my junior year, I guess, I was reading an article about this guy, John McCain, who had just replaced Barry Goldwater in the U.S. Senate. And he was some kind of war hero, prisoner of war. I read his bio and I thought, I'd like to work for that guy. And uh, I knew that Chris's family was involved in politics. So I asked Chris if he would, let, if he would allow me to ask his father for a letter of recommendation for an internship, so I could do an internship for McCain. And that was the summer of um, 89, I guess. And um, and so uh, he dutifully wrote a letter. I got accepted to do an internship. I was assigned to work in foreign policy 
And the office manager for McCain said, uh, you're going to be doing health care. And I said, well, I don't want to do health care. And she said, well, the guy who does foreign affairs is kind of a jerk. And uh, he's going to run you ragged and you're not going to do anything interesting or cool. You're going to be making photocopies. And the guy in healthcare is really cool and he'll let you do neat things. I said, okay, I'll try healthcare. So that began a friendship with Dave McIntyre, who is now, I think, the CEO of TriWest Health Alliance in Arizona. Right. Pretty big That's operation. Right. Uh, he was the legislative assistant for healthcare for McCain. And I was his intern that summer. And um, I kind of watched what they were all doing in the office. And I thought, I could do this. And uh, <laughs> I decided that when I finished college, I wanted to come back to DC and work on Capitol Hill. And my first choice was to work for McCain again, uh, but I was willing to work anywhere really. And so I, I think I did two interviews my senior year in college, one with John Kyle and one with Jim Colby to be a legislative assistant. I didn't get selected for either one. And then I kind of had this choice to make, was I going to move to DC anyway, or just give up at that point? And I decided I was going to move to DC anyway, but I needed money for an airplane ticket and a couple months rent. So I worked at the uh, beer warehouse run by Golden Eagle Distributors uh, by Chris's family. And I work in the, worked in the breakage department where if you know a six pack or 12 pack fell off the truck and half the beer was spoiled, but the other half wasn't, you took the half that wasn't and you repackaged it. And that's, that was my job all summer long. I didn't have a car. So I took the public bus and you have to understand they keep it at about what, 50 degrees, 45 degrees in the- 42 degrees is the operative temperature for the way uh, of a beer warehouse. Yes. Of a Anheuser-Busch beer warehouse. You need to be specific about that. So it's <laughs> at that time. Sean. And I'm getting on the Tucson, what's it called? The Tucson sun star or something? Uh, a sun tram. I'm getting on Sunshine at Alvernon and Fifth wearing a hat, gloves. <laughs> I mean, I looked like a crazy person in 110 degree weather, but I knew once I got there, it'd be cold. And of course, coming home, I kept all that stuff on because I was I still had chills in my bones. But that's how I paid for my my ticket to D.C. Fascinating. And then the, and then the rest sort of is history. So. so what when you ended up coming out to D.C.? What did you, where did you land? Okay, so I, so I rented a, uh, I shared an apartment with a couple guys at GW who were from my same fraternity at NAU. I was a Sigma Chi. And, um, and I got a part-time job working at a consulting firm called Strategic Planning Associates, uh, doing, doing data entry three days a week. And that left me two days a week to go pound on doors on Capitol Hill. And I did that for about two months and um, never got a job offer. And then McCain's office called in like September after two months of me knocking on doors. And they said, are you still looking for a job on Capitol Hill? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, Dave McIntyre just convinced McCain he needs a legislative correspondent and I think you're gonna be getting a call. So sure enough, the next day I got a call from McCain's chief of staff and he said, John, we're we're sixty thousand pieces of mail behind in healthcare and social security, and we have an election in two years. So we need to, we need you down here, and we need to get you to work. Don't don't come out of your cubicle till it's done. <laughs> so 
that's how it that's all began. quite the backlog. Yeah, they had a big backlog. Says, Thanks, McIntyre. McIntyre <laughs> liked the big, big boss, but he didn't like answering constituent mail. Yeah. Well, anyone who knows the Hill, it's, you know, you're in Senate or House, you're in these little tiny plate, you know, office settings. Yeah. And there's just stacks and stacks of mail. And back then, nothing's digitized. So it's literal, like paper copies of mail that you have to, you know, respond to. Clip the draft response to it, then it goes up the line, somebody edits it, comes back. Oh my gosh. I have PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. It was it was a score. We did get it all answered and caught up. And I learned a lot along the way. You know, you have to research all these issues that these constituents are writing about, figure out what the senator thinks about it, and then articulate it for him on his behalf, and then get that letter edited by someone higher up the totem pole who's probably a better writer than you. In my case, it was Eric Everhard, who also was the staff director for the Indian Affairs Committee in the Senate. Great guy, attorney, level-headed, easygoing. Nothing could, could shake that guy. And he made my writing better. And, um, and so I did that for two and a half years, almost three years, and uh, went through the uh, 92 election, uh, was sent to Tucson to help work on the campaign in 92, the re-election campaign. Have some stories from that, maybe we'll get to later. Um, and then when, and then after another year of that, I, I feel, I really feel, felt like it was time for me to step up into more of a policy position and John Kyle's health legislative assistant had just left. He was contemplating a run for the Senate. And so I, uh, I, I offered to take that position. I, I lobbied heavily for that position and, uh, Kyle reluctantly and probably with some regret uh, gave it to me. My writing also improved a lot working for him. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah, he really and, is. Uh, boy, could he, so, he could take something that took me two pages to write and he could say it in one paragraph. And uh, my writing really improved working for him too. Because Kyle, I mean, people don't realize it. Even as, definitely as a House member, but even as a senator, he would get, I mean, he would edit stuff. I remember I, I did some, I was doing some research for his campaign in 93 and I wrote a memo on some stuff that I had figured out, gave it to Robert Glazier who was running his campaign. And then Glazier calls me the next day. He says, you need to come back to the office, comes back and hands it back to me. And it's just totally redlined and all these, and he's like, this is Kyle's edits. I'm like, you gave it to, you gave it to him. <laughs> I was like, I didn't expect him to see it, but man, it was a much better document after he did it. <laughs> Very different management styles. McCain was a broad thinker and said, here's generally what I think. Now you go implement. And Kyle knew everything about everything. And so it was very hard to staff him because you had to stay two steps ahead of him, which wasn't easy. And some right. might say near impossible. And so, you know, I remember early on in my time there, um, he had a major speech that he was going to give to the AMA. And I spent hours and weeks on this speech and, and back and forth with edits from him and all this. And everybody in the office knew how hard we were working on this. He comes back over the weekend after giving the speech. We have a staff meeting Monday morning. And he says, I want everybody in this office to know that I gave the best speech of my career this weekend. And there's like this pause and people are looking at me like, wow, Desser, you must have really nailed it. And he goes, Unfortunately, I left John's draft here at the office, 
and everyone just <laughs> laughing, realizing that the best speech he gave of his life was off the cuff because he didn't even have my draft with him. <laughs> well, he'd looked at it so uh, so so many times, he probably had it memorized. Yeah, exactly. It was still your speech. Still added some value, yeah. To get him thinking. So yeah, well, where'd you so after 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 Kyle's office though, you had a really great run with a group called the Jefferson Group and and learned a lot about yourself and um we we began a really interesting journey of faith during that time and you'd been kind of dabbling in 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 a faith journey and we've we've talked about it on this show and you feel comfortable talking about it a little bit? Yeah, you have to understand I'm a nice Jewish boy from New York City, the son of an Orthodox rabbi and the son of a Israeli uh, citizen, a, a woman born and raised in Israel. And so, you know, we did not do much in terms of faith when I was growing up. My father was uh, had, had, was going through a season in his life where he was very secular. He's now returned back to Orthodox Judaism and lives in Israel. But during that, during my growing up years, we were quite secular. And so uh, when I came to Capitol Hill in 1990, someone invited me to a breakfast and I thought it would be a way to sort of meet other young staff people, which it was. Um, and everyone was sort of gathered together in the Rayburn uh, cafeteria. And um, there was about 15, 20, mostly men, couple gals. Everyone introduced themselves, what office they were from. And it seemed normal enough until all of a sudden it got really quiet and one of the guys who looks a little bit older than the others pulls out a little book from his coat pocket and starts reading from it. And I'm thinking, is that the Bible? Is he reading from the Bible in front of all these people? That's embarrassing. And um, and he and sure enough, that's what he did. He read a little uh, scripture verse and then spoke about how it pertained to life in, on Capitol Hill and, and being a congressional staffer and this sort of thing. And I was just flummoxed. I I was intrigued by the things that he said, because these were thoughts I'd never heard before. And I was also quite annoyed that I'd been duped into participating in a Bible study that nobody ever told me was going to be that. And so I was, I didn't know whether to be interested or angry. And uh, I decided I'd go back the next week anyway. And um, over time, I, I, I just kept going to that little group and I was learning things that I'd never heard of before. Then they said, because you're part of this group, you get to usher at the national prayer breakfast. And so in 1991, I attended my first of 30 some national prayer breakfasts. Um, and uh, I always get this wrong because I think these were two separate breakfasts, but at one breakfast, Secretary of State James Baker was this keynote speaker. And at, I think the breakfast the next year, one of the speakers, he may not have been the keynote, was uh, Mislav Rostropovich, who at that time was considered the greatest cellist on the planet. And those, re those two men represented sort of the two passions of my life at the moment. One was pu public policy and politics. James Baker, I thought the world of him. He was Secretary of State. He was Secretary of Treasury. He was Chief of Staff. I thought he was the guy. And he gave a compelling message. And then the next year, I think it was, Rostropovich is speaking. And, you know, I, I, I was on the cello scholarship at Northern Arizona University. So I've been playing the cello since I was nine years old. 
I have Rostropovich's records. This is my hero in music. And he's getting up and basically conveying the same message as Baker, which is that, you know, of all the things I've learned in life and all the thing, all experience, uh, experiences I've had, the real, you know, the real, everything really stops with at the foot of Jesus. It's about this person, Jesus. And I'm going, what is wrong with these people? These are accomplished, intelligent people. Why are they talking about a fairy tale that Christian moms teach their children? I mean, they might as well be talking about Santa Claus. I didn't know what they were talking about. But the one thing that did strike me. Meanwhile, you're ushering. ushering. <laughs> 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 so having all these thoughts while trying to help people find their seat. First of all, what am I doing here? First of all, why are these people even, what? I love it. One thing that did strike me is that, that um, and this is referred to in, in uh, by Jesus himself, I think, in the book of John. He says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And one thing that I, that really stood out to me with this group of staffers is that they genuinely seemed to care about each other. And they were so much less self-centered than any other group of people I'd ever been around. And that was different. That did get my attention. And so during this whole time of working for McCain and then Kyle, I I'm continuing to go to these meetings. And then finally, um, I think it was while I was working for Kyle, I asked if I could move into one of their houses. They had a property uh, on C Street, right, right near the Cannon House office building, that eventually was going to be used for members of Congress to live in, who were going to be sort of in a, you know, accountable group and Bible study kind of situation. Shattuck may have lived there. I think uh, did he go? Did he go he to the studies? Or? He went to he went to C Street. He went to the Bible studies, but he never yeah. lived there. Anyway, I lived there as a staffer before the members uh, lived there. In the basement. I, I was not a believer when I moved into that house. I was not. I just said, what does it take to live here? Is it good enough for you to just want to study it? You know, or do you already have to know what you believe? And they said, no, no, that's, that's play, this place is absolutely for people who want to study it. And so I moved into that house and I started reading the Bible cover to cover. I started in Genesis and I read a chapter a day. And by the time I got to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that's what really hit me. I read the Sermon on the Mount and I thought, I don't understand how these Christians fit into this program, but I'm pretty sure that's the Jewish Messiah. And, um, you know, I'll sort that other part out later, but that's got to be our guy. That's, that's our dude. That's the guy that's been prophesied that I, I've been reading about. That's got to be him. Fascinating. And that was a really interesting time because that was the time when you were living there that I moved out there right after college. And I was actually, I actually lived out in, um, the same group was, was hosting, um, interns out, out at, in uh, college park. And so I was living out there with some folks who were both interning and also looking for, for jobs. And so I spent a good summer there at, at C street just watching John with this. And, and back then, you know, I, I would consider myself speaking, you know, dancing with Jesus. I, I thought I talked a good game and, 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 and could hang out. But it was really neat about it was everyone had their own, was coming from a really authentic place and, and had their own struggles that they were dealing with. Like John wasn't alone there. Right. Nobody had it figured out. 
and nobody and, and everyone was coming either at it from a religious perspective or a family perspective or but everyone was like okay who is Jesus that's that was the question everyone was asking and and a lot of them were coming together you know um trying to figure it out yeah so it was really it was really unique and back then there weren't any congressmen living there yet so we were doing all this work <laughs> in the house and it was a really unique environment for fellowship and uh that was my ex first exposure to um what 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 is the prayer breakfast in c street right other how john how did how did your parents react as <laughs> that's you were, a great question i got some really good this. advice about that because you hear horror stories of you know jewish families who disown their kids and they hold funeral services for them because spiritually they're dead because they've uh they've changed their religions or converted to a different religion i had some really good advice from a guy named david co that's doug co's son and he said to me you know what um, if you study the scripture, which you're now starting to do for the first time ever in, in your life, you'll notice that your role as a son is pretty clearly laid out, and it's to honor your mother and father. And I would just like to submit to you that going home and pounding your parents over the head with a New Testament might not be the most honoring thing to do. <laughs> and you might think about not doing that, and you might think about just waiting and caring for them and serving them and loving them. And maybe someday when they ask you, what's the cause of the change in you, then it'd be dishonoring not to answer, uh, to answer honestly. But you should, you should wait. And so I did that. And, and Sean, I waited for 10 years. Mm -hmm. and, um, and after 10 years, my relationship with both my mother and my father, who were divorced at this point, was so restored that by the time they heard the reason for it, they, they, they didn't want to do anything about it. They didn't, they didn't want to toss out the baby with the bathwater, that's for sure, because I'd been honoring them for 10 years. And, um, you know, those conversations happened differently at different moments, but it was, I think it was roughly around the same time, within the same 12 months, that they both asked me, you know, what's different or what do you really think about this or whatever? And, um, and so the relationship was already restored. So there was, there was no rupture in the relationship like you often hear about. That's great news. That's great. So I, I do have one question. So in terms of the prayer breakfast, James Baker or Bono? Who did a better job? <laughs> well, there's James Baker. He was important to me because it was at such a pivotal moment in my life. And then next after him was Mother Teresa. Okay. And she was amazing. But Bono was just something else altogether. Um, it's a whole different level. So he, he calls me up. He's like, can you make it to the prayer breakfast this year? I'm like, I don't think I can. I've already been to too many. I've been out of town so much and already been to too many U2 shows at that point that year. And I met Bono actually that, that October right before the prayer breakfast. And uh, But I watched it and I was like, oh. You gotta be, and then he's sending me pictures of he and Bono. And right, like you gotta be kidding me. Bono had such a cool vibe, Sean. His first line when he came out there was like, uh, "You know, I'm not really sure why they invited me to speak to you because uh, I'm definitely not a man of the cloth, unless that cloth is leather." 
Yeah. <laughs> and it was so disar- disarming. Everybody in the room started laughing. But his main message was phenomenal. It was, I remember it to this day, his main message was this. Most believers spend their lives trying to get God to bless what they're doing. And maybe a more efficient way to go about it is to spend some time figuring out what God's doing and then be a part of that because it's already blessed. That's a great message. Yeah. And you can, you can still go online and watch that and still one of the great messages um, of, and, of the prayer yeah, And the moment with Mother Teresa that was so cool was I was the head of the ushers by that time. So I got a call at three in the morning saying, Mother wants a prayer laid out at every single place setting. That's 3,000 place settings. So I get a bunch of volunteers together and we're handing out the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And there was a lot of nervousness among the prayer breakfast people because Clinton was president and they didn't know if she was going to confront him about abortion. And, you know, there was all this discomfort about it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the hour comes and, um, everyone's in their seats and, uh, and, you know, it's a power center. you got the president of the United States, the vice president of the United States, all these Supreme court justices, members of the cabinet, all the key members of Congress, usually a couple hundred members of Congress, diplomats from all over the world, business leaders, whatever. And this little thing comes up on stage, basically wearing what looks like rags and just, and there's just a hush over the crowd. Like everybody realizes the most important person in the room is her and all eyes are on her. And she comes up to the podium and then just disappears because she's so short. You can't see over her and someone has to rush out and put a little stool down. And then all of a sudden, you can see her head pop up and she starts her message. She says, well, before we begin, I want to read this little prayer. You should all have it at your, at your table and let's read it together. And she starts reading. She reads through the first line and then stops and turns to her right at the head table where the president is sitting and says, Mr. President, are you going to join us? Cause he had been talking. And he goes, oh, yes, of course. Yes. And he <laughs> gets his glasses, pulls them down over his nose. And literally, she starts from the beginning of the prayer so he can join us. It was fascinating. <laughs> and then when it came to the um, issue of abortion, she handled it, it so beautifully. She didn't condemn him or say anything negative at all. What she said was, and when it comes to your children, if you don't want them, just give them to me. Mm-hmm. And she she said it with such sincerity that everyone believed that's what she meant that she meant what she said, and uh, and so it was not Mother Teresa. Yeah, it was not condemning. It was a very beautiful way to handle it. And I'll say this about Hillary Clinton: a po- very positive thing about Hillary Clinton in a private meeting, either before or after the breakfast. I wasn't there, so I, this has just been recounted to me. Uh, she asked Mother Teresa if there was anything she could do for her. And Mother said, yes, I need a house. And Hillary said, what do you mean I need a house? She goes, well, I need a house where I can care for the poorest of the poor in Washington, D.C. And and Hillary Clinton then set off on a mission where she somehow was able to help the missions of charity acquire an old VA home that wasn't being used for anything in Northwest D.C. And to this day, I think the Sisters of Charity uh, for the, at that time, they were they were h- h- housing uh, AIDS patients. Uh, 
I think, and uh, and and then just maybe homeless people after that. I think that's that place is still running. But she was pivotal in getting that property for hmm. uh, Sisters of Charity. Mother Teresa, Saint Saint yes, Teresa, Saint Calcutta. Teresa, right. Right. Now, that's that's incredible. Yeah, those are great stories. I got a chance um, to the last. She put her hands over my head and blessed me. So nice uh, Jewish from New York being blessed by St. Teresa. How about that? <laughs> yeah, the National awesome. Prayer Breakfast. It, it, it was virtual this year, right? Yeah, it was virtual this year. A lot of it was pre-recorded. Uh, yeah. yeah. Most of it was pre-recorded. So it was a bit of a letdown. But yeah. Yeah, people still spoke passionately about their faith and, and the importance of it to them and there were some there's some great uh, comments made by uh, various leaders, including President Obama and um, what's the guy's name, the for, former mayor of Atlanta and uh, ambassador to the UN, who I always have such respect for. Andrew Young was great, mm -hmm. and um, so Obama's last prayer breakfast actually was really interesting. You had. Um, he he gave one of his best speeches, I think, at that prayer breakfast. It was it was disarming, and and the people I spoke to, because uh, that was actually when I went to, um, I went to two in a row, uh, most recently Obama's last prayer breakfast, where everyone said that was the best speech he's given in the eight years he's been president. He actually was really vulnerable, um, and actually spoke openly about his struggles. And then uh, I came next year, and Barry Black was the speaker, who's the chaplain of the Senate, and he brought down the House. <laughs> People got up and cheered. He was very impressive. Yeah. So yeah, that had a big impact on my life, Sean, is um, seeing these leaders who I respected for their leadership positions talk about that not being the most important thing to them. I remember John Ashcroft, who wasn't somebody who normally would appeal to me very much, a little too right-wing, a little too Christian-y. Uh, but I remember him giving a speech to a group of students that was kind of connected to the prayer breakfast. And he's been governor twice, and he's about to be senator twice for the second time, reelected as senator. And, and he gets up and he says, um, you know, I've, I've had some pretty cool jobs. And these are all things I aspire to at that point in my life, right? I'm thinking I want to go into politics. And he says, I've had some pretty cool jobs, governor, senator, you know, who knows what's next. He says, but if I could be one person in history, I know exactly who I'd want to be. And I'm waiting to hear this because this sounds interesting from a guy who's done some interesting things. He said, I'd want to be Simon of Cyrene and carry Jesus's cross for part of the way. And I tell you, I don't know how that strikes you. Maybe it sounds cheesy, but it got me right in the feels. And I was like, oh, because again, he was so sincere about it. You could tell he really meant that. And that was another moment. I was still living at Sea Street. It was right about that time where I was getting to reading the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought, you know what? I think this is it. This is the real deal. Jesus is actually real. And he's probably the Jewish Messiah. And through him, all nations on earth are, are blessed. Wow. Powerful. Yeah. And, and John, you've gone on to a really interesting career in politics and, and on the healthcare side and, and now work for an online um, e-commerce provider. And 
It's interesting that you brought, when you brought up Hillary Clinton because my, my initial reaction was you, you see so many of that bipartisanship, camaraderie, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood at the prayer breakfast. And yet we find ourselves living in a world with it's such vitriol, especially in D.C. And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience. You've worked on both sides of the aisle, you've, you know, of bringing people together, you know, in that spirit, because you've done a, a tremendous job with that. Thank you. Um, well, you mentioned Jefferson, and I when I left um, Kyle's office, I took a year off and went to Israel. Then I took another year off and lived at another property that was affiliated with the prayer breakfast. And then I was praying about what I wanted to do next, and I started with a legal pad, and I just wrote down 100 jobs that I thought would be cool, including astronaut and baseball player. And it, I, did, I didn't restrict myself to talent or, or basic requisites, just what I thought would be cool. And as I prayed, I just got down to a smaller and smaller list. Eventually it was 10 jobs, then three jobs, and then one job. And the job that was left was to be mentored by a Republican uh, lobbyist who knows uh, how to lobby and can teach me how to lobby uh, with integrity, who has a similar worldview to my own, um, and, and, and is in a big firm. So that's pretty specific. And, um, and about a week later, I was invited to go on a hunt, duck hunting trip. And someone introduced me to a guy named Tom Donnelly, who was a Republican, worked for Ronald Reagan, in healthcare, was his assistant secretary for legislation at HHS, and a special assistant uh, for legislative affairs at the White House. And was running the health uh, was running a part of a, a major lobbying firm, called, then called the Jefferson Group, which later split and became Jefferson Government Relations. And Tom was just that he was an incredible mentor to me. And so we worked together for ten years, and he he taught me everything he knows about the lobbying world, which he had been in for decades by that time. You know, he grew up with people like Fred Upton and Dennis Hastert and. You know, all these people who had all the positions of most senior leadership in Congress were his buddies because uh, they, they all started out together. He and Fred Upton worked in the Reagan White House together. Uh, Tom was doing Ledge Affairs and Freddie was, was, doing, um, was working at OMB, uh, handling a lot of the issues that, that Tom and he would go to the Hill together to lobby on. I just saw Upton a couple weeks ago and we were reminiscing about, he was telling me stories about him and Tom you know, back in those days. So Tom was a great mentor to me, both in terms of the business world, how to do lobbying well, how to do it with integrity, how to put relationships first, how to recognize that almost nothing gets done unless you work with both sides. And so you have to have relationships, trusted relationships on both sides. And, um, and so it was a great experience for me working with him. That's awesome. Yeah, Tom Donnelly is a is a tremendous guy. He he became somewhat of a mentor to me during that time as well. And um, and he he comes with everything from a from a faith perspective. And so, you know, I I credit him just so much of what you know, John and I have done some some sort of lobbying projects over the years. And um, one was uh, trying to work with Kyle's office to um, re to reform or or kill the death tax. 
back in the day, uh, the first two big Bush tax bills. Right. And uh, so we did a lot of work up on the Hill. And, but we met with all... One thing that was always really interesting that Tom kind of preached was you just never know who you're going to meet who's going who's gonna to steer you to somebody else. <laughs> and that was sort of our experience. We would just kind of go bouncing around the Capitol Hill meeting with folks on on this issue and making sure and, and creating alliances and everything it was and and reporting back to tom right it was great hmm. yeah and the prayer breakfast really does lay, lay a foundation for that i mean sean you were in partisan politics on the hill always in the majority or sometimes in the in minority also sometimes, sometimes i was there from, from 2006, 2006 to 2008, 2008 so we're in the minority then so. okay so brief stint to the minority and then a, a good chunk in the majority yeah. It's really different when you're, especially in the house, being in the minority. That stinks because you can't do anything basically, yep. except beg and plead. And then you know, in the Senate, <laughs> you're in the minority. As long as the other side doesn't have sixty votes, you you can make some stuff happen. Uh, but you have to know what you're you're doing. You have to have a good staff, and you have to be willing to be a bit of a pain in the neck, which you know McCain was certainly expert at. Um, and so. Uh, but it's rough and tumble, and you learn you learn to fight for your side, and it's it was it, it hasn't been um, it hasn't been appreciated or or elevated this idea of making friends on the other side. When I when I first came to McCain's office in 1990, he was the ranking member of the aviation subcommittee on the commerce committee, and the chairman was uh, Wendell Ford from Kentucky. And he was an old time tobacco guy and smoked in his office and, and McCain and Ford got along famously. They were buddies. And, you know, you have the impression that even George Mitchell and Bob Dole were basically friendly. They, they, they respected each other. And, um, you know, a lot of people make fun of that and they say, yeah, that's because the answer from the Democrats was always no. And, you know, it's easy to just, you know, so people criticize Dole or, uh, or Bob Michael because they they didn't put up a strong enough fight. I'm not really sure it was so much that. I look, the Gingrich Revolution was a big deal for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly because he was able to articulate conservatism in a way that um, most Americans could understand and appreciate. Um, so that was huge for the conservative movement, so to speak. But as as time went on, there, it just became more and more. As, as, as Chris said, vitriolic. And so a lot of it has to do, as I said, with tr having trusted relationships on the other side. So the Reagan tip O'Neill relationship is, was huge. You know, George H. W. Bush had a, had a respected and respectful relationship with Dick Gephardt. Um, but by the time you got to Clinton and Gingrich, there was real animosity there. Right. And, and uh, Gingrich didn't trust Clinton for, for anything. But the truth is, Clinton co-opted a lot of the Republican agenda and took credit for it. And that was brilliant uh, yep. from my point of view. But, it's, but Clinton struggled with having trusted relationships on the other side. And then when you got to um, George W. Bush, uh, I thought he would do better than, the, 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 than he ended up doing in that department. He started off well with Kennedy on some education reforms. And then it was like people in the White House, Karl Rove and others said, Okay, we got to shut that down. We're not doing that for eight years. And it got more partisan. And when I was at HHS working in the Bush administration on the issue of health insurance for the uninsured, 
I knew from experience, you can't get anything done in healthcare unless you do it in a bipartisan way because it's so emotional. And that was really one of the struggles that the ACA has suffered from is because it was done with all Democratic votes, it's always been a target from Republicans. And I, right. I will tell you this here, and I wrote it in an op-ed, if it weren't for brain cancer, <clears throat> there would never be an, an effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. And the reason I say that is because Ted Kennedy, had he lived, would have insisted that the Democrats make enough concessions to get at least 10 Republican senators to vote for health reform, in which case it never would have been relitigated, because he knew as a principle and axiom in healthcare, you can't do healthcare on a partisan basis. And so- um, Well, that's such a great point. I think it's worth looking back at history. What happened there is Kennedy dies, there's a, you know, a special election to replace him. Scott Brown gets elected yeah, as, the, as a Republican. Democrats no longer have the votes that they need to pass this thing, and they push it through on reconciliation, which we're now all in the midst of again. Yeah. Um, but that was such a big, big deal. I think you're so right, John, that had Kennedy lived, he would have, <laughs> excuse me, insisted on having there be some bipartisanship. Absolutely. Um, he did it routinely. So, he and John Dingle did that routinely. They would always undercut their own side just a, just enough to get Republican support so that things could be bipartisan. Do you think there's any hope of that now? Do you think there's any hope? I mean, who do you see trying to do that now? Well, before I get to that even, I, I just want to say one of the things that hurt Obama was having 60 votes in the Senate, right? Because... Now he doesn't have to be bipartisan and any attempt by him to try to be bipartisan is going to be met with re resistance by most Senate Democrats. I, I was told that in the Senate caucus meetings, Jay Rockefeller was screaming at Harry Reid to make Max Baucus stop the negotiations with Chuck Grassley on health reform because it was never going to produce anything. The Republicans were just stringing them along. No Republicans were going to vote for health reform. It was a waste of time. And you don't have Jay Rockefeller screaming that at Harry Reid if you only have 54 votes in the Senate because you need six votes to get anywhere. Right. And so and so because they had the luxury of 60 votes, Rockefeller was able to convince Reid to make Bacchus drop the negotiations with Grassley. And they wrote a partisan bill in the Finance Committee and the Help Committee, which then got combined into one bill by Harry, in Harry Reid's office. But um, I always feel bad for Obama that he was left with that situation because I don't think it would have been his instinct. I know it wouldn't have been his instinct to be par to be partisan about it, but he, he was almost forced into it. Take his relationship with Tom Coburn. He had a great, personal, trusted, spiritually-based relationship with Tom Coburn that was based on their participation in the Senate prayer group. Yeah, we yeah, talked, talked about that. And, uh, you know, the, the only thing I fault Obama's staff for is not making that relationship more of a priority, right? What would have helped Obama is to have Coburn come to the White House once a week to pray with Obama. Because if they did that, Obama would have stayed more spiritually engaged, had a better understanding of what Republicans were thinking. And I just think it would have paid dividends that none of us can even imagine. But... The, the people around uh, Obama in the White House, they, I don't think they saw, they understood that relationship and, and therefore they didn't uh, make it a priority. 
or help yeah. him make it a priority. Agreed. But, but that's the segue to my next question. I mean, with Joe Biden being Joe Biden, with the 50-50 split in the Senate, you know, who who do you see being, not, not even the the power brokers, the prayer brokers? Who do you see, if, if what we've talked about over the last, you know, almost hour now has any meaning, then wh where are we today with that? Where are we with the folks who are meeting every week in prayer and what do they do now with with a 50-50 Senate with progressives who I would imagine don't <laughs> don't partake par partake in the prayer breakfast that much and 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 but pushing their agenda very very hard on on a president who doesn't seem it, who's who's a shell of his former self and we saw that yesterday um, with the press conference and we've seen that since the election it's getting worse unfortunately yeah, I mean, I think I think there's some positive things and there's some negative things. I mean, let's go back for a minute to the Bush-Obama transition. Uh, David Axelrod said that Obama was a reaction to Bush, which is true. And Trump was certainly a reaction to Obama. And you could argue that Biden is a, re is a reaction to Trump, right? We went from the least managed uh, president to the most managed president uh, in one election. And, you know, we people always would would wonder what what's going to happen if we elect somebody president who's never even been elected dog catcher before well we know the answer the answer is you get some stuff done and you alienate slightly more than half the country in the process so trump was great at getting stuff done as a business executive he was not good at bringing the whole country along and you know bush and obama struggled with that too but they they were certainly better at it than trump so now you have biden who i think because of all of his time in the Senate has a lot of bipartisan instincts. He's driving the liberals crazy right now that he hasn't already cut off negotiations with Republicans on the infrastructure deal. And he's going to let that string out as long as necessary, meaning until there's either a deal that he can sign off on or until it becomes clear he tried, he literally waited to the last minute and then decided they just needed to move forward. That's his instinct. And that seems to be what he's doing. Um, and I, and I actually, you know, for all of the, for all of the things, for all of the disagreements I might have with a, a, a larger government approach to public policy versus a smaller government approach to public policy, which is what I support, you know, there are some positives to a 50-50 Senate and a president who has a lot of experience in the Senate. And, uh, and, 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 and I'm, I'm very hopeful that he'll be able to navigate that. We pray for, me and my kids, we pray for our president every day. We've done that since Obama was elected. It didn't start occurring to me until then to do it. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I should have been doing it during the Bush years too. But but for eight years of uh, Obama and for four years of Trump and now for the first year of Biden, we pray for our president and the vice president every day that God would give them wisdom in making decisions for our country and all of our other leaders elected and unelected. We pray that every day. It's wise counsel. Yeah. By the way, when you pray, by the way, when you pray for your leaders, it's a lot harder to hate them. It's mm -hmm. a lot harder to judge them. You start to ascribe good motivations to what they're trying to do. You might not agree with everything that they do, but you have compassion for them, which I would argue is harder to have if you're not if you're not a, someone who prays for your leader. Yeah. Totally agree with that. It's certainly something that's lacking 
in this world <laughs> is compassion. Yeah, well, especially I towards think elected we've seen officials. <laughs> President Biden definitely needs our prayers, <laughs> and the country needs our prayers for sure. Um, the other place that really needs our prayers is John's home community. I wonder if we can pivot to that just yeah, a little bit. Absolutely. So your 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 county has been in the news a lot, John, for for for, for virtue of um, um, your school board trying to implement some things that uh, that a lot of the populace, including I'm sure you and your wife, really disagree with. And uh, and so how is it out in Loudoun County? Is it just I mean, you don't need to get in the weeds, but I would imagine it's a real struggle for a lot of families for um, for various reasons. Well, let me pontificate it this way. <laughs> um, like I said earlier, there's a couple of different ways to organize government and the distribution of resources. And my former roommate and, and very close friend, Max Finberg, who's a liberal Democrat and proud of it, worked for Barack Obama. And I have a slight difference of opinion. We both uh, read the Bible. We're both adherents to the teachings of Jesus. And as a result, we both care a lot about the poor. And so, because Jesus cared a lot about the poor. And so a lot of decisions about how to organize society, if you're a believer, should be related to how do we care for the poor? What's the best way, most efficient way to care for the poor? My personal view is that I believe if you have ma a society has maximum liberty, then we can hope and, and count on generous individuals to care for the poor. Max simply doesn't trust that. He doesn't think it'll be enough. And so therefore he'd rather err on the side of redistributing more, redistributing more resources than absolutely necessary in order to make sure that there aren't hungry people in our society. It's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate and fair difference of opinion on the most efficient way to care for the poor. He doesn't doubt my commitment to care for the poor, and I, don't, I certainly don't doubt his. Um, and I think he thinks it's also a legitimate disagreement. Okay, so having said all of that, let's say a couple other things. Do Black Lives Matter? The answer to that is duh. Of course Black Lives Matter. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Have Blacks been the subject of consistent uh, discrimination, both overt and covert, since slavery? Yeah, I would definitely concede to that too. Should you therefore take extra steps to do something about that? Yeah, I've even been convinced of that. When I uh, spent a weekend with Tom Skinner out at Skinner Leadership Farm Institute, he convinced me um, very passionately that affirmative action was actually worth it at the end of the day. I used to have a liberal sociology professor at NAU that opposed affirmative action because he said, if you do affirmative action, people won't go see black doctors because he was worried that people would not see minority professionals because their uh, certifications and requirements would have been less than for white people. I think that's an interesting point, but as a practical matter, Tom Skinner convinced me affirmative action is actually worth it to make up for the years and decades of discrimination that used to happen. So I wanna concede a couple things. Black lives matter. Discrimination has existed in this country for a, lot, a long time. Now, when you get to the subject of critical race theory, which is the subject of a lot of news out here in Loudoun County, how did that all begin here? Well, it began because some teacher did some exercise 
in gym class with kids who were being freed from slavery or something like that. I don't remember all the details, but I was reading about it recently. And the school board said, oh boy, uh, that's a problem. Clearly our teachers need sensitivity training. Mm -hmm. So to make sure that everybody had sensitivity training, they went to the experts and hired a consulting firm. And the coolest, latest, greatest thing in race relations these days is quote, critical race theory which I don't know that much about. I have to be honest with you, I'll concede that point. But if, if to the extent critical race theory is not just about righting wrongs or making, making it clear to students that discrimination in all of its forms are evil, which I support 100% as a minority myself who experienced some tragedies and during the Holocaust. Um, but if it crosses into uh, trying to teach children that equity is somehow superior to equality, then now we're back into the disagreement between me and my friend, Max Finberg. We're no longer talking about discrimination and the need to address it one way or another. Now we're talking about how you organize society. And I believe that liberals have a right to believe that redistribution of wealth is the right thing to do. I prefer if they move to Cuba or to China or to Russia to do that, but they're, they're, they're American citizens. They're, they're allowed to vote their conscience in the way they think is right for this country just as I am allowed to vote my way of thinking. And I think, uh, I think a better way to care for the poor is to rely on the generosity of, of individuals and that God will speak to people about their resources and help them realize he didn't give it to them for them. He gave it to them to be a steward and to help make and to help distribute what he's given to them to others. He gave us the poor, not, he gives the poor for a reason. The poor exist for a reason. The reason is we're supposed to learn how to be generous. Okay. If my money gets taken from me and then redistributed, do I ever really learn that lesson? So that would be a new argument that I have the next time I see Max. But um, so that's all baked into this whole discussion about critical race theory. It's very confusing. I haven't delved into that at all. But the one, the one recent thing that happened that I thought was uh, problematic and unfortunate was when a teacher stood up at a school board meeting and talked about a draft policy that he thought was not that violated his conscience. And the reaction to that was to put him on administrative leave. And he got yeah. reinstated due to an injunction that, that uh, a, a judge uh, ordered. But, um, you know, I do think obviously that was probably a mistake by the school board. We all should be have the ability to voice our opinions and our views, even if they're not popular. Uh, we moved here to Loudoun County for the schools, to be honest with you. Um, and so, you know, we, we, um, the schools in Loudoun County still have some of the best instruction in the state of Virginia, maybe even in the country, but these issues are being sorted out and debated and it's, it's a little bit intense right now. Um, but I hope we'll just remember some basic things like uh, let's let people, people are allowed to have different views and, uh, and, and teaching kids about the, the, the dangers and the, um, and the uh, results of discrimination is absolutely something that should happen in our schools. Teaching them whether one approach to uh, solving, uh, to organizing society is better than the other probably crosses over into an ideological discussion that's better held, uh, you know, outside of the school forum, I think. 
We should elect John Desser to, you know, school board. School board of, of, of Loudoun County. Loudoun County. Yeah. Anything? I think that's your or, next or calling, just, John. Or, or just Congress again. Yeah. <laughs> we can <laughs> both go. go out there and run this campaign. That's right. Anything. That's right. I've got my hands full chasing after our four kids. <laughs> I'm holding down my job. Well, we uh, we truly appreciate all the time you've taken um, on this uh, first ever of our Zoom Vir- virtual 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 podcast past podcast, and we could, we could go a, a lot of different avenues, but we're running out of time. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have you back, and especially if you get back here, we'll have you in the studio. He has yet to come visit. Yeah, you need to come he visit. Come to visit in like a long time. No, it's been a while. Yeah. I have a beautiful goddaughter in the Valley of the Sun. Chris's daughter, Campbell, is my goddaughter. Who who you'll be seeing in about two weeks. And I'll just be flying in and out. you're going out. Well, I'm just flying in and out. You know? uh, he's, he's leaving really quick, too. So it'll be the 4th of July, most likely, with the deserts. Awesome. I really appreciate uh, talking to you guys, and I appreciate what you guys are doing. I think it's really cool that you have this forum. And uh, you've had some great speakers. I don't know how I got in the middle of them. You guys must have had a weak, a weak moment, uh, or just everybody else was unavailable. But the point is, I think it's cool what you guys are doing. And and I'm a I'm a I'm a listener and a follower, and and I'll, I plan to continue to do that. We appreciate it. Well, maybe now all, the, all of our friends, some of whom you've mentioned, will will stop texting me and say, "When are you going to have John on?" <laughs> <laughs> That was when are you going to have John on? Well, just you know, we got to figure it out. Uh, But thanks also for being our guinea pig for for this virtual session because hopefully it'll bear some fruit uh, down the road with other folks who want to want to come on. So thank you. Bless you guys. uh, Love love you. Appreciate your friendship and God bless. Thanks, man. See you. Thanks everybody. Bye bye.